You're listening to sermon audio from Gospelite Baptist Church. For more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit gospelite.org. Well, it has been a great privilege and joy for me to be with you. Uh, Today, I had the privilege of visiting, uh, sharing a little time with all of your staff and uh, the pastor, and that was a wonderful and sweet time we had together today. I really enjoyed that. I love him, grateful for him and for the wonderful staff that you have. And then this afternoon, I was able able to enjoy your beautiful weather, and I got an article written that I was behind that was due, and I was able to get that written here in the beautiful state of Arkansas. Tomorrow, I'm going to get two other things written that I need to do as I enjoy the sunshine and the beauty of your state. So thank you so very, very much for the privilege that you've given me to be with you. Missions, that's what we're all about. We're all ultimately called, are we not, to be a part of missions. We give, we go, and we pray. Those are the three things that all of us do. And here we are again praying the prayer that Scott mentioned. Lord, do anything in me you need to do in order to do everything through me you want to do. I'm so grateful for all of the students who are here tonight. You know, seeing all, you've got a very young church, by the way. A lot of young people, a lot of students, a lot of young men and women in this church. That is a great thing. A wonderful, wonderful uh, blessing. And I've been thinking, just reflecting back, when God called me to preach, 1973, in November, and I was 16 years old, playing baseball at the time in high school, and God called me to preach, and never would I dream what the Lord would have for me, but the greatest joy in life is doing whatever God calls you to do, right? That's the greatest joy in all of life, and I see all of you, especially you that are, that are students, I see those of you that are junior high, high school, or probably middle school nowadays, it's not junior high anymore like it was when I was in school, but, you know, I see those of you that are older children, I see you students here, those of you that are in uh, uh, middle school, high school, those of you that are in college, those of you that are young adults, you're just starting out, God is going to do some great things with you. And I don't mean to leave out those adults out here who we want to call them middle age, we hate being called that. Those of us that are middle-aged, I'm sort of past that. I'm actually a little over uh, 60 myself. I'll never forget, uh, it happened to me, it's probably been now about five or six years, and I was in line at a first cafeteria, and I was eating by myself that day. I just had a craving for cafeteria food, and I was eating by myself. And so I got my food, and I got to the end, and the sweet lady there, she couldn't have been more than 18, 19 years old working the cash register, And she looked at me and she said, would you like your senior discount? (laughs) And immediately I knew I was not young anymore. (laughs) But I don't envy you. I mean, you're young and sometimes I wish I were young because of things that happen and go wrong when you're older. But nevertheless, you got the life, your life in front of you. May God do great things with you. Pray that prayer tonight, especially if you're a student. Here, Lord, do anything in me you need to do in order to do everything through me you want to do. Tonight our text is found tucked away in the back of the New Testament in one of the letters written by the Son of Thunder, 
His name is John. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. I want to direct your attention tonight. And for the next maybe 40 minutes, I want to do an exposition and application of these verses. And I'm going to give you some of your time back that I took from you last night. I let time slip away from me a little bit, and I preached about 55 minutes last night. Normally, I don't do that. But, of course, here I am, and I'm gone after Wednesday, so what can you do to me, right? But, (laughs) no, no. so I'm going to give you some of that time back tonight. I feel like I impinged on your time just a little bit last night. But 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 11, when you think about it, these verses have everything to do with missions and everything to do with each one of us, and you'll see why in a moment. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 11, Beloved, John writes, my translation, Christian Standard Bible here says, Dear friends, beloved ones, let us love one another. Because love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent His one and only Son. The older translation there is His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Love consists in this, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. When my oldest son, Jeremy, was about, I think he was about six years old, one spring afternoon on my way home from work, I stopped by the sporting goods store and I bought him his first baseball glove and a little youth baseball. And I brought it home and when I got home, I called him out into the front yard and I presented him with his new gifts. Oh, he was elated. He was overjoyed. I showed him how to wear the glove and how to, you know, put the ball in there and how to hold the ball and that kind of thing. And then I pulled out my glove and I said, Jeremy, want to play catch? And he said, sure, Dad. And so I said, all right, get over there about 10 feet, get ready. And so I took the ball and I gingerly threw it to him. Well, you know what happened. It actually hit his glove, but he dropped it on the floor and he on the ground and he picked it up, you know, and I said, all right, throw it back. And so he turned and he threw it to me, but it was an errant throw. It went off to the right, and I had to chase it down. And so I got it, and I said, all right, Jeremy, here we go. Get ready. And I'd throw in the ball again. And this time, it would hit his glove and fall. He still couldn't quite catch it. And uh, he'd pick it up, and he'd throw it back to me. And this time, it was in the air at least, but it was an errant throw off to the left. I had to chase it down. And that was the day, the first day that Jeremy and I played catch. From that day until his 18th birthday as a senior in high school, I bet we played catch a million times. I introduced him to the game of baseball. I introduced him to catch. I bought him his first glove, taught him how to wear it, how to hold it, how to throw the ball, how to catch the ball. And you see, the reason I did that is because that gave me the opportunity 
to spend time with him and express my love to him. You might be surprised that in a short letter of five chapters called 1 John, the word love occurs 46 times. John is very interested in the subject of God in three ways. God's love for us, our love for God, and our love for one another. John traces the stream of love to its source, and when he does, he discovers God is love. Love is the essence of the Christian life. Love is also the evidence of the Christian life. You know, love is not like other subjects, right? Other subjects, you have to learn them, then put them into practice. Love is not like that. You learn love by practice. In that sense, it's more like measles than math, isn't it? And so the word love, it's not an emotional, sentimental, squidgy, group hug kind of a word. No, the word love in the Bible, God's love for us and our love for Him is a word that means an unconditional love. It means that God loves you not not if and not because, but anyhow. It's the kind of unconditional love that comes from God Himself that teaches us how to love. And we love not because we understand and first love. No, we love because He first loved us. And God's love for us is not based on anything within us. There's nothing worthy of His love in us. We are all sinners, separated from God because of our sin. And yet, He loves us anyway. But it is not a love if, because it is a love anyhow. God loves us because of who He is, not because of who we are. That's just the nature of God's love. And John talks about loving God here in these verses. And basically, he tells us that there are three things, three truths that we need to know in order to practice this love of God. And the first truth is we are to love others because love is personified in God himself. The ground, the reason why we are able to love other people who are within the church and why we can love people outside of the church for Jesus' sake is because love is personified in God himself. Look at it in verses 7 and 8. Let us love one another. There's the command. It will be repeated again in the last verse. Let us love one another. Why? Because love is from God. That's the first thing we are told, the first ground and reason why we are to love one another is because the source of love is God himself. Look at it. Love is from God. Feelings come to us. Love comes from us. Feelings are passive. Love is active. Feelings are instinctive. Love is chosen. And our choice to love doesn't come from weather, digestion, good vibrations, heredity, environment, or anything else. It comes from the love of God that has invaded our hearts through Christ. And because we know Christ and because we've experienced the love of God, now can we love Him and love one another. 
So John writes, we ought to love one another. And the first reason is the source of love is God himself. Just like the sun emanates the light and the heat, the, the sun is the source of that light and that heat that we enjoy every day. And therefore, just in the same way, the source of love is God himself, which he radiates upon us every single day. It is an amazing thing, isn't it, that the sun shines on the earth, not because the earth is the earth, but because the sun is the sun. And God loves you, not because of who you are, but he loves you because of who he is. That's the amazing thing about this love of God. Its source is God himself. And then John gives a second reason for why love, we ought to love others because love is personified in God. Look at what he says. He says right here, and, verse 7, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Look at that. Everyone who loves has been born of God. John is very fond of that metaphor, the new birth. He got it from Jesus himself. John chapter 3, as he records there, Jesus met Nick at night, remember? And when Nick at night, Nick by night came to Jesus, and Jesus said, Hey, Nick, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You've got to be born again. The new birth. What an apt description of the Christian life. It is the new birth. Now John continues that in his letter, and he uses the same principle or the same idea. Everyone who loves... And don't mistake him as saying everybody who has a puppy love feeling, their first love when they're in the fifth, sixth grade, or everybody who loves hunting or fishing or whatever. No, no, it's within the context of loving God. Everyone who loves like this gives evidence they've been born of God. Like father, like son and daughter. Right? Born of God. Your children possess your DNA. Right? They possess your nature. As parents, your children have that nature. Your DNA is in your children. Go with me to the hospital. Let's go to the nursery where the newborn baby is. Let's look through the plate glass window at our newborn child there. And we've got all the family. Here's everybody. We've got everybody, grandma, grandpa, the aunts and uncles and everybody's there. And we're all there. Now, what are we doing? What are we talking about there? Are we talking about the weather? No. Are we talking about politics? No. Are we talking about sports? No. What are we talking about? Oh, we're talking about how that child is a, a member of our family. Oh, look, she has her mother's eyes. Would you look, she has her daddy's hair. Oh, look, she has grandmother's cheeks. Oh, would you look, he has papa's nose. That's a child that's in our family. Because of the characteristics. It's a case of like father, like sons and daughters. And John says, everyone who loves like this gives evidence they're in the family of God. Isn't it wonderful to be in the family of God? Brothers and sisters in Christ, God our heavenly father, and we ought to act like God our heavenly father. We ought to be people who love one another. We've been born into that family. And not only that, notice John says at the end of verse 7, not only have we been born of God, but we know God. Look at that word know. There are two words in the Bible for our English word, K-N-O-W, to know. There's a word that means basically to know and learn facts. It's a book learning kind of a knowledge. 
And then there's a word in the Greek New Testament that describes learning or knowledge by personal relationship and experience. That's the word here. You see, I know God. I don't only know facts about him. I know him personally. And if you're a Christian today, you not only know facts about God, you know God. You know him like you know a member of your family in ways that others don't because you're in the family. And that's what John is saying here. Everyone who's been born of God and also knows God gives evidence of that by the way they love. But now watch it. Then John says, but now, oh, there's another side to this coin. Look at verse 8. He says in verse 8, the one who does not love does not know God. Here's the opposite. Here's the contrast. Here is a statement that, look, if you don't love, then you don't know God. If you are always striking out in the love league, if you've got a zero batting average in the love league, you don't have a clue who God is. That's what John is saying. It's an in-your-face kind of a statement. After a positive statement in verse 7, now there's an overt negative in-your-face statement. If you don't love, you don't know God. And then here's why. Look at it. Because God is love. God, by His very nature and His attributes, is love. Look at that, the powerful statement, God is love. God is who He is because of His nature and attributes, and He loves because He is love. It's a part of His nature to do so. You know, it's interesting, human love is oftentimes response love. Now listen, listen to what I'm saying. Human love is response love. Oftentimes, it's response love. I love him if, or I love her because, right? I love him because he's handsome. I love her because she's beautiful. I love him because he's rich. I love her because she's intelligent, you know. I love because it's a response. There's something, stay with me, there's something in the other person that is appealing and that draws our love, right? It's a response love. Not so with God. You see, God's love is not a response love. God's not sitting up there saying, well, let me see if anybody will love me and I'll reciprocate. No, God expresses His love to you when you are unlovable. When you are still in your sin, when you don't love Him and you don't care about Him, God still pours out His love upon you. Again, the sun shines on the earth, not because the earth is the earth, but because the sun is the sun. It's its nature to do that. That's the nature of God, is to love us, even though we are undeserving of his love. So John says, now the first thing you need to know to practice this kind of love is you've got to do so because love is personified in God himself. And then John moves in verses 9 and 10, he shifts gears, and he said, now there's a second thing you need to know. And the second thing you need to know, you need to love one another because God has proved his love for us 
through Christ. Look at verses 9 and 10. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent His one and only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Love consists in this. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation for our sin. In these verses, John says, the greatness of God's love is described in five things. Quickly. Five things. Look at them. Number one, look at it. God sent. Stop right there. Time out. Stop right there. God sent. In human interaction, you have an offender and an offendee, the one who's offended. So if in my haste to exit the building today, I just step all over Scott's toe to get through the aisle, and I elbow him as I go through, and I'm headed out the door, and and I'm rude as I do that, Does Scott turn to me and say, oh, uh, David, I'm sorry? Well, no. He's the offended party. I'm the offender. It is incumbent on me to stop, turn around and say, Scott, I don't know what came over me. Brother, I'm so sorry. I stepped on your toe and I elbowed you. I I didn't intend to do that. I am so sorry. Would you please forgive me? And I have no doubt, being the Christian gentleman that he is, that he would forgive me because it is the nature, human nature, that the offended party should seek reconciliation or the offender, the offender party should seek reconciliation with the offended party. But that's not how it works with God. You see, God is the offended party. He's offended by all of our sin. We're the ones who have offended Him. We have spiritually stepped on His toes and elbowed Him and told Him we don't care for His grace and mercy. We are sinners and we don't care. And we deserve justice. We deserve punishment. We deserve death. We deserve hell. But does God leave it at that? No. God is the offended one who turns around and seeks reconciliation with us. God doesn't wait for you and me to come to our senses and say, hey, we need to, why don't we get a group of us together and let's go to heaven and go up toward heaven there and see if we can sue for peace with God. No, God doesn't wait on us to do that. There's a reason why none of us do that. It's called total depravity. It's none of us would ever come to God like that. No, God initiates the process. He loves us first. He's the offended party, but he steps down and he comes to you and to me and he offers us forgiveness and salvation. Salvation is God. It's, it's what God does. He thought it up. He planned it. He provides it. He calls us to be with Him. And we respond by faith. And when we do, God saves us through faith, by grace, through faith. It's the work of God. Salvation is ultimately the work of God. We have to respond by faith, yes. But it's what God does in response to our faith. God initiates. God comes to you first before you ever come to Him. Such is His love for you. The greatness of God's love is God's sin. But now notice number two, the greatness of God's love is whom God sent. He didn't send a prophet. He didn't send Moses or Elijah or Isaiah. He didn't send an angel, Gabriel or someone else. No, whom did God send? 
God sent, look, his only begotten son. The greatness of the love of God is demonstrated in the greatness of whom he sent to be our Savior. And the one whom he sent is none other than the one and only, the one and only unique son of the living God. And literally in Greek it reads, God sent his, or God, his son, his only son, God has sent. It is his one of a kind, altogether unique, God's only son. Word in Greek there for God's only, only begotten son. You know, you may see that in your translation. That word is the word monogenes in Greek. You say, I knew it, just a matter of time. That old professor is now going to bore me to death with a Greek word. Well, wait a minute. Hold on. There's a motive in my madness. Hold the phone. Wait a minute. You know this word. You just don't think you do. Monogenes is one word in Greek. It's made up of two Greek words, and you know both of them. Mono means what? One or only. And genes is the Greek word G-E-N-E-S. And we transliterate that word and bring it over into our English language as the word genes. And not genes as in Levi or Calvin Klein or skinny. But genes as in DNA, right? And so now, watch it, who is Jesus? He is God's monogenes, his one gene, his one-of-a-kind, altogether unique son, no other like him, this is whom God sent, his only begotten son. Not only that, it is a way of expressing the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whom did God send? He sent the second member of the Godhead. He sent himself. His one and only Son, that's whom God sent. And not only that, but there's the third statement of the greatness of this coming of Jesus and God's love in Christ. And it is the fact of the purpose of that coming. And look at it, we see it in verse 9. God sent His one and only Son so that, here comes a purpose, so that we might live through Him. You see, you don't have spiritual life until you have Christ. You don't have eternal life. You've got physical life now, but that's going to end. But you can have eternal life, spiritual life, through Christ Jesus. And what did Jesus say in John 10? I'm come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. God wants to give you spiritual life. And students, listen to me. God wants to give you an, a life of full of joy and happiness and success as you live for Christ during your physical life until the Lord takes you home to be with Him. But the foundation of that is spiritual life, eternal life, which comes via salvation. That's the purpose of it. Number four, the greatness of this word, is of this love, is the origination of it. Look at what he says in verse 10. Love consists in this. Not that we love God, but that he first loved us. It originated with God. He's the source. He's the one who started it. Your capacity to love him is because he has first loved you. And number five, the greatness of this love is expressed in its cost. Look at it. Verse 10. God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now let's stop right there for a moment. Propitiation. 
There is a $5 stained glass word. Propitiation. What in the world does that mean? Propitiation. I'll bet you money when you were running late to math class today at school, you and your friend running down the hall, going late, you got the meanest math teacher in the whole state of Arkansas. She hates it or he hates it when somebody's late to class and you're worried to death and I bet you you didn't turn to your friend as you're trying to get to class on time and say, my goodness, we better make a propitiation to our teacher today. No, you didn't say that. Nobody talks like that. Propitiation? What in the world does that mean? Propitiation? Is that a disease? Propitiation? What hockey team does he play for? Nobody knows what that word be. Propitiation is a good Bible word. It's a word that literally means an atoning sacrifice that takes away the wrath of God for our sin and brings us into a right relationship with himself. Now, I need to camp out on this word for a minute because there's something you need to learn about it. Propitiation, God's atoning sacrifice for your sin. There are six things wrapped up in this word propitiation. Are you ready? You've got to understand six things. Here we, are. Here we go. God's holiness, God's wrath, God's justice, God's mercy, God's love, and God's grace. Six things, right? Let's talk about it. Quickly, quickly, let's talk about them. Number one is God's holiness. Here's a clue for you. God is holy and you're not. Strike one. God is holy, and you're not. Your sin separates you from a holy God. We're already in trouble. Number two is God's wrath. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is continually being poured out against all those who do not know Christ. Whoa! Wait a minute here. Time out again. Hold that phone. David, you have just spent whatever, 22 minutes or however long it's been, you've just spent all this time telling us that God loves me. Yeah. Well, now you're telling me that before I was saved, God's anger, he's mad at me. His anger, yeah. Well, how can that be, David? Wait a minute, that's a contradiction. That's an oxymoron. Those two things can't be true. Obviously, you have never been married. Can I get a witness from all the men who are in here? All the husbands? Can I get a witness? Okay. If you are a man and you've been married and you're married, you know that it is possible for your wife to love you and be mad at you at the same time. Now, if your wife can do that, can't God do that? Well, of course he can. Does God love all of those unsaved sinners? You bet he does. But is his wrath because of their sin being poured out? And if they die in their sinful state, do they not spend eternity separated from him? Yes, they do. That's why it's so serious. The wrath of God falls on those of us who are in our unsaved state. Strike two. Number three, justice of God. God's justice says what? Sin must be punished. It's God's written law. Sin is a violation of the law of God, and the law must be upheld. Sin must be punished. And God is a just God. You know, every now and then I get asked this question or a question like this. Somebody will say to me, sometimes it's a Christian, and sometimes it's a not, not a Christian who will ask me, and they'll say something like this. Well, David, why is God so bent out of shape about sin? Why doesn't God just kind of wave his magic wand and forgive us all of our sin? 
he's capable of doing that. Why doesn't, why doesn't he do that? Well, let me answer that question with a question. Why doesn't the state of Arkansas wave their magic wand over the mass murder over there who kills 15 people in cold blood, murders them? Why doesn't the state of Arkansas just wave their magic wand and say, oh, well, he was having a bad day. Let's just forgive him. For me to even say that causes the hair on the back of your neck to rise. And you say, no, that would be an egregious breach of justice. And you would be correct. Now, you take that and magnify it 7.5 billion times, which is how many people are on this planet. And as I said last night, the 7.5 billion foul sewers of sin, 24-7 in one rushing, roaring, filthy flood, empty themselves before the throne of a holy and just God. And then just tell God, let's just wave our magic wand. and Just don't worry about your justice, God. Just let everybody go. No, sin must be justly paid for. Strike three. David, I'm out. Wait a minute. There are three more words, you remember? There are six words that describe this word propitiation. You just got the first three. Hold it, hold it. There are three more. The fourth word you need to know is the word mercy. Have you not read in the Old Testament? That God is a God of mercy? Have you not heard him declare that he, is, he loves to be merciful, that is his nature? Have you not read in the New Testament, Second Peter 3, 9, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He is a God of mercy. Listen, be very careful about saying, I want what I deserve. One of the problems with America right now is her sense of entitlement. It's more of a problem with the younger generation than it is with the older generation. But it's a sense of they owe me. I'm owed. Somebody owes me. God doesn't owe you anything except hell. Because that's what you've earned under his justice. And the very fact, if you're listening to me right now in this building and you're not a Christian, if you're listening to me right now, the very fact that you have breath in your lungs and your synapse are firing in your brain and you have life is because of the mercy of God. Do you understand that? God is a merciful God. He's given you an opportunity now to repent. Not only is he merciful, he's a God of love. In spite of all we've done to him because of who we are, God's love for us is such that he has extended that love and demonstrated it by Christ coming to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sin. That's love in action. That's not, yeah, I love you, but I don't say, I, don't, I just see it, say it, but I don't do anything about it. There aren't many wives in here today who are going to have anything to do with that man in their life if he tells them verbally he loves them and never demonstrates it. No, God is not all talk and no action. God is talk and action. God proves his love for us. Christ came and died on the cross for our sins. That's his love. And finally, number six word wrapped up in this word propitiation is the word grace. Grace. Let me illustrate and describe grace this way. Justice means I get what I deserve. Mercy means I don't get all I deserve. Are you ready? Grace means I receive that which I don't deserve. God's forgiveness. That's why salvation is by grace. You didn't earn it. You're not worthy of it. 
God gives it to you as a gift. It's the gift of salvation. Oh, it's costly. It didn't cost you anything, but it cost Jesus everything. It cost him his life on the cross of suffering and death to pay your penalty and my penalty. It was a costly gift, but it's a gift of grace. You receive not justice, not even mercy. God goes beyond that and he gives you grace. All six of those words are wrapped up in this word right here. God sent his son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice. Here's how it works. Jesus comes and he says, David, step aside, boy. I'm going to go to the cross. And because God is a holy God and you are unholy, I'm going to step in between you, a holy God, my heavenly Father, and myself, the second member of the Trinity who is holy, against whom, David, you have sinned. And so my holiness... And then number two, David, the wrath of God that should fall upon you. I'm going to step in and I'm going to take your place on the cross as your substitute. And I'm going to receive the judgment of God, David. It's due you. And number three, David, God's justice is going to be fulfilled and satisfied because you could never meet God's law. You have to be perfect. And David, you're not. But I am. And so, David, I'm going to step in your place on the cross. And the justice of God, the law of God, is going to be perfectly satisfied by me, David, dying in your place. And David, my action is an act of mercy because you don't deserve it, boy. And furthermore, David, I'm doing this because I love you. And I'm paying your penalty, son, because I love you. And not only that, David, but the result of my death on the cross for you and my resurrection, my heavenly Father and I, we are able to extend our grace to you, bring you into our family, forgive you of your sin, give you heaven as your future, give you the Holy Spirit who indwells you, give you the joy of living for Christ day by day, living for me day by day. David, that's what my propitiation does for you. Now do you see it? God sent his son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. The father sent, but the son came. The father gave, but the son came and gave as well. And in so doing, the son did not extract from the father a love he was reluctant to bestow on you, nor did the father force a Love on the Son that He didn't want to give to you. No, in perfect Trinitarian harmony, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit have worked together for all eternity for your salvation. Do you see it? Ty Cobb, one of the greatest names in baseball history. A 367 lifetime batting average. 4,191 hits. 892 stolen bases. 12, count them, 12 batting titles. Nine consecutively. Men, did you hear what I just said? 12 batting titles. Nine of them consecutively. Never will that be done again in the history of baseball if it exists for 10 million years. But Ty Cobb was the meanest man in baseball. He was hated by everyone. He would insult 
in his quest for victory, he would insult other players and even seek to injure them when he would slide into second base, cleats up. He played to win, and he didn't mind who he hurt in so doing. Once when he was in a tight race for the batting title at the end of the season, his own teammates hated him so much they rooted for the other guy. Ty Cobb was married at least twice, they say three times many, and in all three cases he verbally and physically abused his wife. He was a racist. He would hurl racial epithets at people of color on on occasion. He was a racist. When Ty Cobb came down to the end of his life, one day there was a knock at his door, and John Richardson, a Presbyterian preacher, came to visit Ty Cobb. When Ty Cobb found out he was a preacher... He cursed him. Get out of here. I don't want to talk to no preacher. But two days later, John Richardson came back. This time Cobb let him in. John Richardson told Ty Cobb of the love of Christ for him. How Jesus died on the cross for the likes of the Georgia peach, Ty Cobb. And when Ty Cobb came to begin for the first time in his life to understand the love of God for him, tears welled up in his eyes and streamed down his cheeks. And what you probably don't know is Ty Cobb professed his faith in Jesus Christ. A short couple of weeks later, he was on his deathbed. And he told John Richardson... I feel the strong arms of God underneath me. Ladies and gentlemen, you cannot sin yourself beyond the love of God. There's nothing you can do to make God love you any more than He loves you tonight. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you any less than He loves you right now. Such is the love of God, the cost of it. God sent His only begotten Son. To pay the penalty for your sin. But now John says, just one more thing do I want to say. And it's in verse 11. He says, I want to come back around and and end where I began. I told you in verse 7, let us love one another. Now John says in verse 11, if God loved us in this way, we ought also to love one another. Now we have love practiced. Love personified in God himself. Love proven in God's giving of his son. Now it's love practiced. And here on the the grounds and on the basis of God's love for you, now God says, my expectation for you, my children, is that you love one another. So the question is, are you doing it? Love one another. Love practice. Look carefully at the verse. If God, the word if means since. Since God loved us in this kind of way, sinners though we are, separated from God deserving of His wrath, 
And yet God reaches out and he pays the penalty. If that's what God through Christ did for you, since God loved you, you have no excuse not to love everybody else. Well, but David, you just don't understand the people on the other side, those, those folks over there on the other side of the church. You don't know what they said and did to me five years ago. No, I don't. Well, David, you don't understand. My wife treats me. My husband does this, my whatever. David, you just don't understand. No, no, I don't know, and I've not been there, but I know this. I know Jesus was being driven to the cross, and he was totally innocent, unlike you. And yet he prayed over and over again, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You see, it is incumbent upon us to love one another. There is a divine necessity. If God so loved us, we must. The little word must there is a word that means it is a divine necessity. It is a moral necessity. Well, David, I just, uh, he's a different color than I am. He's from a different background, different race, different part of the country. David, I just, you know, I'm sorry. You have no excuse. God says, because God loves you, and because God's an equal opportunity Savior and loves all people, doesn't matter who they are, you and I are responsible to love one another, period. There is no room for any form of racism in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every person of every background and every color should be made to feel totally welcome in this church because you love them as much as you love anybody else. You do not treat them differently because of their race or because of their face or because of their place. You treat everybody the same. And you love them the same. If God so loved us, we ought to love one another. So who, who do you not love today? Who are you holding back on? Let's just start within your church. Who irritates you? Who do you not like? Well, I just don't like them. Well, the Bible doesn't say you have to like everybody, but it does say you have to love everybody. And by the way, not everybody likes you either. I realize that's quite a shock. But not everybody likes you either. You know, to love some people, you might as well enjoy the taste of moldy bread and like the sound of a mechanical drill. But the Bible doesn't say it's an issue of liking them. It says, you love them for Christ's sake. Beloved, if God so loved us, as this is the way God loved us, we must love one another. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, said about these verses, he said, Go out and tell everyone everywhere that God loves them as prepared to save them on the basis of the death of Christ on the cross. You will never come in contact, he said, with anyone with whom God is not willing to be reconciled because Christ has, been, has reconciled us to God. There's your mission statement. Here's your ground for missions right here. Do you love those people? In Hot Springs. Hey, they're close by. It's pretty easy to love them. What about people over the next state, like in Texas? A little more difficult to love them. 
What about people outside of our country? And let's talk about some other countries. How about some Middle Eastern countries? How about some Muslim people who, if they got the chance, they would come here, slit your throat, the throat of your children, and bring Islam here to this country? Do you love them? Do you care? They don't love you. But do you care about their eternal soul enough to do something to get the gospel to them? Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. If I were to ask every man in this room tonight to name on one hand their top five baseball movies, every man in this room somewhere in the top five would list Field of Dreams. Many, of, many men would put that number one, their all-time favorite baseball movie. Ray Kinsella, played by Kevin Costner, is an Iowa farmer. He's married to his college sweetheart, Annie, and they have a little girl named Karen. And they've got a little Iowan farm out there, and they're about to go under financially. Pretty bad scene. And one day out in the cornfield, Ray hears a strange voice. There's no one around. He can't figure out where it's coming from, but he hears a voice. If you build it, he will come. Lying on his bed one night, he's awakened from the voice. If you build it, he will come. He's in the hardware store getting the things, the seed and feed store. If you build it, he will come. Ray finally figures out the voice is telling him to build a baseball field. So what does he do? He plows under his corn, and he builds a baseball field. And the people from the town come with lawn chairs and put them up and watch him as he's plowing under his field. And they talk about crazy rays. He's nuts. And he builds that baseball field. And day after day, week after week, month after month, and nothing happens. And then one day, late in the afternoon, a lone figure shows up on Ray's baseball field. Would you believe it? It was none other than shoeless Joe Jackson, the great White Sox player. Oh, my goodness, there's shoeless Joe Jackson on his field. And the next day, shoeless Joe brings some other ghosts, some other ball players from the past, and they have a little scrimmage game, and then they bring some from other teams, and they play on every other day. They're playing out there on race field. It's unbelievable. And as the movie plot winds its way to a close, they're finishing their game, and the players are disappearing into the cornfield at the edge of the outfield, wherever they go when they enter the cornfield. And Shoeless Joe Jackson's character, played by Ray Liotta, steps up to Ray and he says, If you build it, he will come. And then he turns and he looks at the catcher. And Ray turns and the catcher is over there and he's removing his gear, his mask and his gear. And when he removes his gear and turns around, to Ray's shock, the catcher is his own father, John Kinsella, who died many years ago, many years back. And we learn as the movie unwinds that when Ray was 16 years old, He got in a huge fight with his dad. He said ugly words to his father, 
He packed his bags and he left and he never spoke to his dad again. Years elapsed, they never made it right. And then Ray's father died. And the whole movie, Ray's haunted by the guilt of how it ended with his father. And there's his father. And John Kinsella walks up and says to Ray, I want to thank you folks for building this field. And Ray says, you're welcome. And they converse for a moment. And though nothing is said, they both understand. And then John says, well, I I guess I better go. And he turns and he begins to walk toward the outfield to disappear in the cornfield. And he gets a few steps away walking toward the outfield and the camera zooms in on Ray's face. And there is such emotion on his face. And then he utters the most famous lines in that movie when he says, Dad, want to play catch? And his father stops and turns around and says, Yes. Yes, I'd like that very much. And so Ray dons a glove, and as the sun is westering in the sky, his dad over there, Ray here, back and forth, they're playing catch. Back and forth as they throw the ball, playing catch. And the sun is going down, and the movie draws to its close. But there's just one thing about it. Field of Dreams got it exactly backwards. In Field of Dreams, it's the wayward son who comes to the father and says, Want to play catch? It's the Father who comes to all the wayward sons and says, Want to play catch? If you think about your life and your love like a baseball, throw it back to the divine pitcher who pitched it to you first. And the game continues. Hold it, and the game is over. Did you hear that? Do you all hear that? I hear that. Do you hear that voice? I hear it, don't you? That voice from heaven. Want to play catch? Want to play catch? Want to play catch? God sent His Son and loved us in this way in that He became the atoning sacrifice for our sin.